1824, Ludwig van Beethoven completed his final symphony, Symphony No. 9 in D minor. Universally considered Beethoven's greatest masterpiece, the piece and its composer played an integral role in the transition between the classical and romantic eras in Western art music. Beethoven's Ninth, also known as Ode to Joy, later fills the pages of Christian hymnals around the world as the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. This work of art, famous for its uplifting and hopeful melodies to congregations for centuries, stands in stark contrast to the tormented artist who created it. So now experience pianist Jay Hinson's modern take on a timeless classic. Thank you. 
Beethoven wrote and completed the Ninth Symphony in 1824, and it's universally considered to be his greatest work. In fact, many consider it one of the greatest compositions in the Western musical canon. Yet, why does no one argue that Beethoven wrote and composed this piece? Well, it's because we have the proof, right? We have the score. Randy today is addressing the question, is the Bible God's word? Randy will take you through a series of factual truths of why we believe, without question, that the Bible is God's inspired word. So please give your attention to Randy Pope. Well, good morning. I, uh, I have a feeling Beethoven, could he hear that, would say, I like that a whole lot better than what he did, huh? It's <laughs> amazing. But uh, great, uh, great piece. Good to have you here. I don't know how many of you are joining us uh, new this week, but uh, we're glad to have you. Let me tell you a little bit about it in case you are new, kind of to catch you up with, uh, with where we are. Uh, this is a, uh, a thing called investigative forum, as you know, and the ideal of this time is that uh, it gives people an opportunity to simply investigate. Uh, I'm convinced that most people, in fact, certainly people who are theists, meaning they believe in God, they do want to investigate, as we talked last week, at least at that deathbed experience. If they're laying there and they're thinking, I am a theist, and there is a chance, there is any chance whatsoever that Jesus could be who he claimed to be, a person would say, I wish I had investigated him. I don't think anybody who's a theist would lay on their deathbed and say, certainly glad I didn't investigate Jesus. But what we need is a, is a safe place to do that, a convenient and easy way to do it. And we hope that that's what we're providing uh, you here with each week. Last week, I told you that uh, you could get each week, uh, if you miss a week, you can pick that up on the Tuesday noon afterwards, anytime in the afternoon on Tuesday, you can get by going to perimeter.org slash if answers, perimeter.org slash if answers, you can get this videoed and so forth, and you can watch what you've missed if you do have to miss. So know that that is available to you. So here's the overview of what we're doing. We basically are looking at, uh, at five questions. The first is an introductory qu question that we looked at last week, and that's simply the question, how does a person find life satisfaction? Is there a way to find real satisfaction? Then we get in starting this week with four questions that I call primary questions. These are the four questions I'm convinced have to be evaluated, examined, if you want to have a good investigation. Number one is, how can these Christians say that the Bible is God's word and without error or could be believed because it is accurate in all parts? What do we mean when we say that? How can you believe it? Even if it ever was, how does it remain so? That's what we'll be looking at today as our primary question. Now, the next week, we'll look at the second of four primary questions. This one, I think, is the most stretching of all. It's the one where we have to ask, how can these Christians believe that all people, including moral and religious people outside of Christianity, they deserve to be separated from God forever and ever and ever, experiencing what is called hell? How could a good God even create such a place? How could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? We'll look at that next week. A lot of those questions are important to so many of us. And then the next question is, how can these Christians believe that of all the religious leaders that have ever lived, that there's one and only one, this person Jesus, he is the only way to God? 
And then the last question, if you found merit to the first three of these four, I think a person would want to ask the question, well, what does Jesus say is required to have eternal life, to be with him forever and ever? So that's where we're going over these next weeks. We want to make it as simple and easy as possible. And so uh, what we're doing is putting this into three parts. The first part will be my simply addressing the first or, or the question that we're looking at that particular week. And then number two, we're looking at the Gospel of John. If you do not have yours that we gave you last week, uh, we're going to encourage you to, uh, to get one of these once we get to this part. I'll have you raise your hand if you don't have one. But we have questions in the margin, and I'm going to hit a couple, just several of those questions I think you'll find very, very important and helpful. Then we open it up to Q&A, which I'll describe when we come to that point. So you should have a little insert uh, that you find or a uh, thing on your chair. Pick that up, if you will, and you can kind of follow along with me as I walk through uh, what I'm going to call um, uh, this, uh, in fact, I just, let me pull something out here, what I'm going to call uh, six realities uh, which make it at least reasonable to believe that the Bible would be God's Word. Now, I want to say from the beginning, can anybody prove the Bible is God's Word? I say no. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I certainly would never try to prove it. I think what you can do is give evidences to make a decision as to what you think is or is not the truth about this. So, uh, here's the way I look at it. I think most people say, I think Christians, I think Christians just shelved their brains to believe the Bible is God's Word. I meet with many, many people. I mean, I've met with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on an individual basis. And we talk about this as part of our discussion. And as we do, I say, what do you think about the Bible? And their answer is typically something like this. Oh, it's a good book. I think it's, it's got value. I, I, I said, but you wouldn't believe, as I would, that this would be the Word of God that has been given to us inspired and protected over time to remain such over these long, long centuries. Is, is that true? Yeah, I, I wouldn't believe that. And then I give them the reasons why I personally can believe that it is the Word of God and what we would call an infallible word. Do you know what happens? Virtually every time that I do that, people sit there and listen, and then they say, man, I never knew that. I believe it too. You believe that? I hope not, because that's a lie. I rarely hear anybody say they believe it just because I gave my reasons. So don't believe that for a minute. I'm not assuming that. And by the way, it is not, it is not my intention to convince you that it is the case. What I want you to know is this is an opportunity to investigate, and I want to make that an opportunity. I'm not, I'm not here to debate or try to win a debate. Not at all. I want to help you make the decision that you think is right. That's all I'm trying to do. But here's what does happen to person after person. And after we've met over a period of time, I might get this feedback. But it, it's basically, I'm hearing this. You know what? I'm not necessarily agreeing with you that your Bible is without error and all that that you say it is. But I will say this. I now understand how you, as a reasonable person, could possibly believe that it is the Word of God. I don't see that that's beyond understanding now, because I just didn't know the things that 
I've just learned. So let me share a few of those things with you. And you again can follow with me. I'll give you a few uh, quotes that might help from people that I think you'll find to be reasonably uh, intelligent and people of, of worth to listen to. Number one, the Bible's historical reliability. Uh, Lewis Marcus is an apologist. An apology, by the way, means a defense. An apologist of the 21st century. He says this, in order to substantiate the basic claims of Christ and the essential doctrines of Christianity, the apologists need not prove the inspiration or inerrancy of the Bible. He need only show the Bible to be reliable in its account of Jewish and Christian history. I think that's an interesting point. If we can prove this is a historically accurate book, it's a believable book, then that's, that's really the important thing right there. If you look at dates, places, people, storyline, you're going to see it. Accurate, accurate, accurate. Archaeologists, uh, the, the discoveries they're making are constantly, I mean, as it's often been said, archaeology is the Christian's best friend in terms of believing in the Bible. Archaeologist William F. Albright, he writes, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. A renowned Jewish archaeologist, uh, Nelson Gluick, he says it this way. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Very interesting. Oxford historian A.H. South, I think is the way you pronounce his name, but it, uh, he says this, time after time, the assertions of a skeletal criticism have been disproved by archaeological discovery, events, and personages that were confidently pronounced to be mythical, have been shown to be historical, and the, order, and the older writers have turned out uh, to have been better acquainted with what they, have, they were describing than the modern critic who had flouted them. You have extra-biblical writings, uh, such as Flavius Josephus that I'm going to go over later, uh, probably two weeks from now. We'll talk about uh, some of that. But Jeffrey, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Brashears, he writes, Viewed merely as an ancient text, it would be regarded by all serious and honest scholars as probably the most reliable historical text of the ancient world. So that's just the, the point of historical reliability. I think there is a strong argument to be made, as you read, there's strong arguments to say it is a good historical writing, if nothing else. If it's not inspired of God, it's an accurate historical writing. Number two reason would be the Bible's scientific reliability. Dr. Brashears, he writes this way, Not only does the Bible support modern cosmology, including an instantaneous creation and the constant expansion of the universe, but it did so more than 3,000 years ago in stark contrast to all other ancient cosmological theories and long before Moses and other writers of the text would have known the truth about such phenomena. Indeed, the Bible describes features of the universe that would not be discovered until recent times. This knowledge is only explicable in terms of supernatural revelation. At least that is that, the opinion as he writes. 
Now, you know, science today is, uh, is telling us uh, that there is an outside power required for our universe. That's becoming more generally accepted as a belief, which was not the case years ago. But now the science of today is saying there was some kind of power that had to exist to bring this place into being. Uh, there's no evidence to, I'm going to suggest, I really believe this, and I've done some reading. I'm not, the, I'm not the expert on this. Somebody here may say, hey, let me tell you. I'd love to hear it if so. But uh, there's no evidence to show uh, living creatures produced outside of their kind. In other words, that, that there's this gradual change from one kind to the next kind, one species to the next species. Now, there's evolution within that, certainly, no doubt about that. Uh, agnostic scientist, by the way, uh, Stephen Gould, he says this, species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they finally disappear. I have met with many, many a person. I remember one, one guy I was, uh, I was meeting with, he, he, uh, I met him through some, some guys that I know here in the church, and they said, would you, would you play golf? with this guy. And I said, well, I'd be happy to play golf with him. And uh, he said, this guy is really strong against the things of Christianity. I said, well, I'd, I'd be happy to play with him. And so he said, we're going to put you in a different cart, because if we were in his cart, I think he'd be a little suspicious with that. And I said, okay. And so we're carting, you know, two different carts. We get to the turn, and we grab something to drink at the turn, and, and we're walking back to our carts, and this guy looks at me and says, hey, you mind, uh, you mind walking with me this next hole? I said, I'd be happy to walk with you. So we're walking down the fairway together. Hey, he has his, his uh, big cigar in one hand, his beer in the other hand, and we're just walking down, just having a good time talking. He said, hey, you know what? He said, uh, I really hate these, uh, you know, hellfire and brimstone churches. I, I don't like those. When I hear I'm a pastor, he knows I am. And so I don't really know exactly what to say. And I said, well, I've heard that statement before. That's not a new one to me. I said, I don't know the context with which you're sharing. What do you mean? He said, what I'm saying is this. I don't like your church. I said, you've been to our church? He said, I came one time. And I said, and you found hellfire and brimstone. Oh, yeah, hellfire and brimstone. I heard it. And I said, you know, that's odd. I've never had anybody, I don't think, ever think. I mean, I'm too kind of laid low and passive. I'm not, really? You told me? He said, yeah, here's why. Because you said Jesus is the way to God. I said, now that's a different story. And we got to talk, and I said, hey, I love discussing this kind of thing. Would you be interested in discussing it? And he said, yeah, I'd like to discuss it. I said, why don't we grab lunch one day? He said, okay, let's do it. So we get together for lunch, and I said, uh, we started talking. He says, I can't believe your Christianity. I said, why is that? He said, because you believe in the Bible. I said, well, yeah, we do. Why, why are you so against the Bible? He said, well, for one reason. Because of science. Science proves the Bible wrong. I said, in what regard? Well, it proves that there is evolution, and the Bible, you have to admit, teaches creation. I said, I admit, it does. And so we got into a discussion about that. And uh, you know what? All I share is one thing as a rule. I, I just share basically a, a, a simple, in fact, if you, when we get to Q&A, if you're interested, you, you can ask, what, what would you say about the creation evolution issue? But I, I shared that with him, and he goes, eh, I, I don't buy, I, I don't buy. That's fine. And we get through four weeks of investigating, same thing you're doing right now. 
And uh, we got through the fourth week. And he said, this has been the most intriguing four weeks out of my memory. But he said, I can't become a Christian. I said, well, that's your business, not mine. I'm just helping you investigate. And I said, now, what's your big hang-up? He said, creation. You can't tell me that there's a creator. This world evolved, and science proves it. I said, well, I don't have anything more to share with you. That's, that's your call. That, that helps you decide that you don't believe in it. That's what I helped you do. That's all I'm looking to do. And so I said, good to meet you, and I enjoyed our time together. He said, you're not going to stop now, are you? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to keep meeting with me, aren't you? I said, well, no, I'm not going to keep meeting with you. I just wanted to help you investigate, and I've done that, and that, that's what I'm here to do. He said, well, I don't want to stop. And uh, I said, well, maybe we once a month, maybe we can talk a little further. And so it was two or three months later, nothing really seemed to change. And one day I get a phone call from him. And he's traveling international with his business. And he said, Randy, I'm sitting here on my balcony. I'm looking at one of the world's most magnificent mountain ranges. And he says, I can't explain it. But I am convinced. Only God could create this. And he said, I've become a follower of your Jesus. If you met this man today, you'd be amazed. I don't know a man that studies harder the things of God because he is so riveted in the truth. He said, I believe it with all my heart. Now, I don't mean it's true, but I tell you this, there is something more than just facts to figure out God. That's an important thing to remember. Now, we'll move to the... Uh, to the next, the historical, or the historicity uh, of the uh, resurrection. I'm going to hold that because in two weeks we get to Jesus uh, being who he claimed to be. And one of the things I want us to discuss then is the resurrection. That's another whole set of information. So let's, let's move down to, uh, to number four. The Bible's united theme. And you see there on your paper, fifth, over 1,500 years the Bible was written over that time period, 40 authors, three languages, uh, different continents, uh, different cultures, and uh, the absence of contradictions. Now, I know that, that some people will say there are contradictions. Uh, maybe you'll bring up something that you say, what about this? This is a contradiction. Maybe I can address it. Maybe I can't. I'll say this. I've yet to find a contradiction that once I've been given time to go study it and look at it, I come to an answer that without shelving my brain reasonably explains it to me, but I mean it will to you. But uh, I, I think there is an argument to be said. You're not going to see contradictions. In other words, one author is not going to be stating something that the next author refutes. They're going to cross all that time and, and space. They're still agreeing. Number five, the, biblical, the Bible's uh, fulfilled prophecies. You have the Old Testament prophecies, around 300 of them. And things such as, not just minor things, but things like when referring to, to the Savior that would come, Jesus, where he would be born in Bethlehem, descendants of David, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, uh, hands and feet would be pierced. And this was before the Roman means of crucifixion ever came into existence. Um, uh, crucified by, thie by thieves, uh, buried in a rich man's tomb, the prophecies just go on and on and on, and we know historically we can look at the dates of when these things had to have been written in the basic time era long, 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 long before the crucifixion of Jesus, but you have those. You have the New Testament prophecies 
that say these things must come true before Jesus would come back again, which is the primary teaching of the Christian faith, that he would come back. And so you see all of these prophecies. It's been, uh, it's been said that if you had only eight of these types of prophecies, this time period beforehand, just eight coming true, it would be the same as one out of 17 comma, uh, I mean one comma and 17 zeros after it. That would be the percentage of chance that mathematically you'd say that would happen. I, I know I took a, a course, I was a math major in college and, and took a, a course in probabilities and, and when you start factoring in stuff like this in terms of probabilities, you go, oh my goodness. You have to see there's, there may be some warrant to this. There is uh, certainly something to be considered at best. Then you come to number six, the final one. The Bible's uh, manuscripts uh, preservation. Now there's the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is, uh, I, I think, one of the, the, the more um, spectacular discoveries because you find the Dead Sea Scrolls are going to go back 1,000 years prior to any other manuscripts that had been discovered. And so uh, most books of the Bible at part were, were found, except for uh, the book of Esther was not. And uh, these Qumran scrolls uh, were found in an area called Qumran, and so they're called the Qumran Scroll Discovery. Uh, they are they're incredible in that they, they do the study of them, and everybody, of course, the, the watching world said, okay, a thousand years, we're going back a thousand years, my goodness, look, look at the difference of what we found now and a thousand years previous to that. Look how they're going to differ, and they were shocked. Now, there were some differences, and I'm going to explain that in just a second, but they were so minor, they just didn't change the meaning of anything. And in reality, what happened was that they were so amazed by it that they, they were confounded. Say, I, we don't know how to really explain this. Here's the reality. If you look at ancient literature, what's called ancient literature, like uh, the literature of, of Plato, do you know if you go back 1,200 years after he wrote, we have seven manuscripts. If you take Aristotle, you can go 1,400 years later and you have seven manuscripts. In the New Testament, written in generally, we're going to say the same time period, that far ancient history, uh, you have uh, 14,000 manuscripts. So you, you've got incredibly large numbers that help us explain the question, how can you believe the Bible is God's word without error? So here's what I'd like to show you. This is the best way I think this can be explained. If you look at, you see, most Christians in our church here at Perimeter Church, most Christians don't even understand what many of you are going to now understand. They go, oh, yeah, I believe the Bible's God's word without error. And if I were to challenge them and say, you tell me, you tell me how come, give me some reasonable evidence that tells me why. I don't know. And I say, you got to believe you don't have a conviction then. You don't even know. This is what we mean when we say the Bible is God's word and it is infallible. Here's what we mean, which by the way, if you really want to be, think through it, what we really say, the historical Christian faith has said, we say it is infallible as a rule for faith and practice, which I'm not saying there are errors that we're going to be finding in this regard, but I, I, even if there are, that's not the issue. Does it remain an infallible rule of faith and practice. But here is what we mean when we say it's infallible. 
there was an autograph of each book, and I'm going to put just a, you have one writing, and that's going to be what we call the autograph. Now, there's 66 books of the Bible, so there's 66 autographs. We have no autographs today. They've been lost in time, not one, which would challenge the Christian faith with that thought. Okay, so you're saying something's infallible that doesn't even exist. All right, listen up. There would be the autograph, all right? Now, this autograph had to be handed down to scribes. Uh, if you read the New Testament, you will see the scribes and the Pharisees. Very interesting. Scribe, literally, is someone who would, would write or copy. They're actually called copyists. And they are copyists who were to take the Word of God and were copy it so that others could have that same reading. So this autograph would be sent to over here, and this guy might write three or four over the years. Uh, and it would be forever and ever and ever to write one of these things, to copy one of them, because of the laws of the scribes. The law of the scribes, and I studied this when I was in graduate school to ultimately, and I don't remember all the details now, but the, the, man, it was just incredible what you had to do. For instance, it would be like this. If, the, if it was uh, John 3.16, many of you know that verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It had to be like this, four, F-O-R, 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 I don't know how many times. And then you'd have to say R-O-F, 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 go back and forth, back and forth, then S-O, 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 O-S, 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 and then F-O-R-S-O, and they had to go back and forth and back and forth, and then they get to the end, they have to go back. It took them forever to do that. The idea was this. If you follow the law of the scribes, you can't make a mistake. Tell me, could you still make a mistake? Sure you could. We're, we're, we're humans. And even if you're even if you're trying not to make a mistake, you can still make mistakes. And some people you know got in as, you know, some kind of crazy scribe, and he tried to make mistakes. You don't know. So certainly there were some, there were some mistakes made. But then this one would be sent out, and it would go to this community three or four times, and this one three or four times, and this kept going until you get down here years and years and years and years and years later, and you have thousands and thousands of copies. Then what happens is when they find these within the same date line, they find now some others that archaeology shows, and so they're coming from down here, whatever. You get to a certain point, and you have all of these copies. And so you take now John 3.16, for instance. You find John 3.16, and you go, okay, well, let's see. How many of these say the exact same thing? In the Greek language, Old Testament would be Hebrew, and they'd look, and look in the language, and there would be variant readings. So I'm just going to use a number. At this particular time, let's say there are 3,016 different texts that have been found. And so with that, they say, okay, how many are variant readings? And they say, oh, there are 46 variant readings out of 3,016. Oh, and it's interesting that 14 of them were found right here in the same time period, or in this same time period, through here, and you can see where that came from. And it's the same mistakes. So you say, okay. Then you've got 20 of them over here that say God so loved uh, the Jewish person. And so, okay, that's a variant reading, and it came from over here and so forth, until you realize now which ones was the original. And you say, well, let's see. There were almost 3,000 of them 
that say the exact same thing, then I wonder what this one says. And that's what we mean when we say that. So the Bible now can go back and take all the variant readings, and it takes that to be able to say, we know what the original had to say. Now, it's interesting. If you take, for instance, the book of Isaiah, in, the, uh, in one chapter of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found, uh, they had, out of all of these thousands of words, uh, or hundreds of words, they found only just a few. I mean, it was like just a, a handful of variant readings did not change the meaning of any word and so forth and so on, which says we have a reasonable belief that we know what this says. And that's what we mean when we say it is the word of God given by him, and we think it is a infallible rule for our faith, what we believe, and our practice, how we live. Now, somebody might hear that and say, well, that's not proof enough for me. And I'd say, perfect. You just did your investigation. You heard, I mean, I'm sure there are people that can argue stronger than I argue, but I mean, I'm not terrible at the argument. And you can say, I've heard a fairly representative argument of, of what the Christian said. This is what we believe. And we say the Bible is God's word and, and it's believable and infallible as a rule of faith and practice. And you can say, well, I'm glad if that's the best they got. I'm not interested at all. You did your investigation. At this point, that's helpful. I wouldn't stop the investigation because you might find out something coming that might really open your mind to say, whoa. But regardless of the case, keep in mind, often, often, like my friend John, who looked at that mountain, you know what? He had no different belief that came into his mind. He became no less intelligent. He was a very intelligent man but something changed in his heart. So don't ever forget, there could be another factor that could play a role. Now, with that, uh, I think we can... Oh, one last thing that may be important to know. This here is what we would call the, the autograph and the, the uh, uh, transcriptions. Uh, They've been transcribed, all right? That's a transcription. People say to me, but Randy, I can go to my living room and I can go to my bedroom and there's a Bible in both rooms and they don't even say the same thing. And I say, if you check them out, they're different translations if they say something different. A translation is saying, okay, we're going to take the, primarily the Hebrew of the Old Testament, primarily the Greek of the New Testament, and we're going to put it in English or we're going to put it in French, we're going to put it in in Spanish or whatever the language is, that is called a translation. With me? That is a translation. Now, a translator, if you have two translators translating what I'm saying, they're going to translate accurately, but not exactly the same. That's a translation. Then you can take that to a different level called a paraphrase. A paraphrase is when somebody, maybe a dad, is reading the Bible to their, to their uh, child and they say, this is kind of complicated for a child your age. Let me do, I'm going to put it in my own words. And that is a paraphrase. And so that's taking you now a step further from exactly what's being said. And that's, it has a valuable use. But keep in mind, you have to go to the original. That's why those of us that, not all people who are in, um, who are in uh, ministry, but so many go to a thing called seminary graduate school of theology 
where I had to study for years Hebrew and Greek so that we could now look at and understand and go closer to the original so that we've got it there to study as opposed to just a translation like many have to do if they haven't. It doesn't mean they're not qualified, but at the same time it gives a little bit of an aid uh, to that end. So that is basically the answer that I would give someone in brief to the question about the Bible as the Word of God. Now, let me ask you, do you have your, uh, your, your, your Bible, that, uh, the, the book of John? If not, and you, you came in today or you forgot yours, raise your hand, and we've got some to give to you. So somebody's going to just keep it up till they come. There's going to be one person per each section, and they'll hand that to you. I want to ask uh, a few of these questions or answer a few of them. See if they don't give you a little bit more insight into the Bible. I'm finding, I'm finding that people I'm meeting with over lunch, and we do this, when we finish, I hear this quite often. I hear them say, you know what? This is amazing. In a month's time, I feel like I now am beginning to understand the Bible. And I've never been able to understand the Bible. It's just odd. These are kind of like keys that unlock so much of the Bible. So if you look at question number one, question number one says, to whom does the word refer why is the name used? Now, if you weren't with us or you didn't read through this and try to answer the question, uh, this is not going to be as familiar to you, obviously. But basically, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So hearing that just now, who would the Word refer to? Who would you guess? All right. It would be Jesus because the word was God and the word became flesh, which is the teaching of the scriptures that Jesus is God. It's the, it's the whole issue of the Trinity. One God in three persons, equal in power, substance, and glory. But he took on human flesh, and that's what this text says. And then in earth, we know him as Jesus, right? called the Son of God. Now, here's the question you would not be able to answer, probably, in just reading the text. Why is word used to refer to Jesus? Here would be the best I could explain that. If I were having lunch with you, and uh, I've never met you before, and it's a mutual friend who's putting us together, and so my friend tells me this is what you look like, and they tell you what I look like, and we're to meet at a certain restaurant at a certain time, and I happen to get there early. I'm sitting there. I see you walk in. I can tell by looking at you that has to be you. I raise my hand. He's, you see me. You go, oh, and you, raise, you wave your hand, and you come walking toward me, and we put out our hand. We shake, and we nod. We sit down, and we look at each other for a few minutes, and every once in a while, we kind of nod and like this, and then the waiter or waitress comes up, we order our food, and, and then the food comes, and we take a bite or two of it, and we go, hmm, like that, and thumbs up, and, and then we kind of look at each other and eat, and then the, we pay our check, and, and then we kind of say it like this, we wave at each other, and then you leave, and I leave, and now you happen to meet our mutual friend, and our mutual friend says, did you have lunch with Randy? I sure did. Sure did. A good lunch. Well, good. Did you get to know him? No, no, I didn't get to know him. You say, well, what do you mean? You had lunch with him, but you didn't get to know him. Well, not a what? Word 
was spoken. What does word do? Word enables two parties to know each other. That is the teaching of the Bible right there. That God sent his son because we are alienated in relationship because of our own sin. That Jesus is the word and the word is the mean of communications between God the Father and us. That's how we know our Father is through him. That's basically the teaching of that uh, particular text. If you look at number three, if you skip down to number three, why was Christ called the Lamb of God? This is very, very important. And many of you may answer and say, well, and you'd be accurate to say because he died like a lamb dies. Correct. But if you want to know the full story, you've got to go back in history. If you go back in the historical record, you will probably all in some way have some memory of something like this. You heard of, of the Israelites, which were the people of God in the Old Testament days. Moses was the leader during that particular time when they go into captivity to the Egyptians. And the Egyptian leader is called Pharaoh. Does that ring a bell, a lot of you? Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh would not let the, Egyptian, uh, the uh, Israelites go. And so God tells, tells Moses, spokesperson for Israel, that you go to Moses and tell him to let you go. And if he says no, there's going to be a plague. Maybe you've heard the, the, uh, the ten plagues that God put on the people. Now, one plague after the next, and then he, he no, wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him go. They come to the ninth plague, and he once again says, no, I'm not going to let you go. So here's what God says. He says to Moses, now you go and you tell Pharaoh to let you go. And if not, the first male born of every person will die. And he won't let him go. And so God tells Moses, you tell your people this, that the first male born of every family is going to die with this exception. If there is blood on the lintel of the door and the right blood, the appropriate blood is put on the door, when the death angel comes to take that life, the death angel will pass by the home with the blood on the lintel of the door. But here's what you have to do. And by the way, that's called the angel will pass over. If you know anything about the Jewish history, they have a meal annually called the Passover. And that is going back to this period of time. What the father was to do in each household was to take a little lamb and it had to be meeting two qualifications, very specific, had to be a male and had to be without blemish. They would cut the jugular of the, of the animal, take the blood in a little basin, and then what they would do is they'd gather the family members around. Now, first of all, before this would happen, you know what would, what would be happening. Little Dad's going out to get this little male lamb without blemish, and the little kids say, no, 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 Dad, Dad, don't do that. That's my, that's my pet. I really love him. He's sweet. You know, that one bites. He doesn't have an eye in his back legs, you know, missing. <laughs> Let's use him. No, 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 son. It's got to be a male, and it's got to be without blemish. Oh, Okay. So they'd bring that, and, and how sad. You know, the kids had to scream and cry and say, oh, no, that's a little, poor little lamb. Don't do that to my little lamb. But the lamb had to die. Then the blood would be there, and then they would have to each think, what sins come to your mind over this past year? Never could touch all of them. But they would confess their sins, and they would put their hands in that blood, and they would wash. And the idea was that that little lamb 
would take the sin away. Now, do you think that little lamb took any sin away? No, never was intended to believe that. The idea was simply this, that the Old Testament law said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that the life of the flesh is in the blood. All of this was waiting to point toward this one that when you come to the text is when John the Baptist is the one who says it, sees Jesus from afar and he declares, ah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. He was simply saying, this is what was being told in that meal called the Passover meal. And so that was to tell them there is one coming who will take away our sins. So just to have a little background on that certainly helps. Go to number five. Number five says, what did Jesus mean when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again? Isn't that a terrible term, born again? Uh, people, I hate that term. And the reason is because there are a bunch of crazy idiots out there that are in the name of being born again, killing doctors, you know, for this reason or that, and doing this and doing all this stupid stuff. And, and, and so people who are of the Christian faith don't even like to be called born again because if you're identifying me with that crazy, I, I don't like that idea. But, but I want to go back. These were the words of Jesus, all right? And you, you must be born again. So what does it mean to be born again? So I'll ask you a question. You just answer to yourself not out loud, but I'm going to put up three boxes, and if I were to say to you, which of these three best describes you in a spiritual way? One, I am not a Christian, all right? Don't even claim to be a Christian. I am a Christian. I do believe I am of the Christian faith. I am a Christian. And this person says, I am a born-again Christian. I can't tell you how many hundreds of people I've asked this question to. And the people I'm meeting with will typically say, I'm not a Christian. No doubt what that means. Or they say, oh, I'm not, not a Christian, but I, I am a Christian. And I am... Not a born-again Christian. So I'll say that. When you say you're a Christian, you didn't identify with born-again because you say you're not born-again, right? No, no, I'm not one of those, but I am a Christian. I say, okay, good. Now, then I put up three boxes, and I use this analogy. I say, let's assume that you're married and that you and your wife want to have a child. And you've been trying, and you think maybe now, you've, you may be over a few days, and you're excited to think that maybe there's, there's a pregnancy here. And so... If I'm talking to a man, I'll say, let's say your wife goes out and, and, and she gets a pregnancy test. And she comes back after the pregnancy test and says, uh, uh, you say, honey, tell me, what would you find out? Well, she could say one of three things. She says, well, I found out I'm not pregnant. All right, we know what that means. She should come, could come back and say, hey, I'm pregnant. But what would you think if your wife came back and she said, I found out that I am semi-pregnant. And you go, honey, I'm not sure you understand pregnancy because either you are not pregnant or you are pregnant. It's not, there's not an in-between. 
Well, in a similar way, and this can just be confusion of not knowing the terminology, but I say, you got to know this, that to be a Christian means you've been born again. And you're born again to become a Christian. It's really one and the same. You can't be a Christian without being born again. Again, it may be an issue of terminology, but you need to know that because if you think, I don't think I know that I've been born again, then you really want to keep investigating. And I say that to many of you that are out here saying, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure, whatever. You, you, and it'll be my job, and I will give you this assurance. I will do the very best I know how to do. At week four, I will make it very, very clear what does it mean to be a real Christian or to be born again. That will be part of the, I mean, that goes with the deal. I'll promise you, you will know what the Bible and Jesus say about that one, all right? But let's keep that in mind as you think in terms of this, of this issue of uh, uh, what does it mean to be born again. If you go down to, uh, to number six, what does Jesus say was necessary to have eternal life? And the answer there says you must believe. You have to believe. Now, if you look at the, uh, at the word believe in the Greek language, and by the way, the, I should say this, the Greek language is very, very, very complex compared to even English, which is, a, is, is still a fairly complex modern language. But if you compare it to, to the Greek, no comparison. The number of words in the Greek language that help describe exactly what was meant, and if you study the history of the Greek language and why it came about, uh, and particularly this uh, Koine uh, Greek that is being used here, when you look at that Koine Greek, uh, it was written so that the, now you have a one world, basically military, and they wanted all these, they captured all these different you know, lands, and they had to have a language that was so precise. And so we have the word believe. Okay, do you, do you believe? Yeah, I believe that. But it may mean something far different in this regard. This word is the word pistuo in the Greek, which means to put one's trust in. The illustration that's used of that, uh, whether it be a true story or not, doesn't even matter. But the story is told of at Niagara Falls, there was a man that was walking tightrope across a little segment of, of the, the falls and would go across and come back and everybody would applaud and throw money in the hat. On this particular weekend day, he had just gone across, come back, and everybody was applauding and he said, how many of you believe that I could? And he points to a wheelbarrow set aside over there. He says, how many think I can do away with my balancing beam and can use a wheelbarrow to go across and balance to come across and back. How many believe I can do that? Well, all hands go up. And he goes, all right, let me do it. So he goes across and he comes back. And they all applaud. Then he says, how many of you believe that I can put someone in that wheelbarrow and go across and come back? Well, all hands go up and believe. So he points to one of the people and says, ma'am, you, you just said you believe? Come get in the wheelbarrow and, and let's go across. And, and she says, no, 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 I'm not getting that wheelbarrow. He said, well, I thought you said you believe. And this is what he, she did, or he did, said, oh, I believe, as they pointed their head, but I don't believe, as they pointed their heart, meaning, I'm not going to trust you for this thing. I believe you can, but I'm not going to entrust myself to that belief. And this you need to know, this kind of gets you the beginning of the spiritual journey understanding. Everything Jesus talked about was this trust. It was not belief in that I am who I claim to be, 
but you put your trust in me so that when I say, come, you would say, I will, because I trust you. Does that make sense? Very important. When you get to 7 and 8, I'm not going to go over those, but uh, the significance of Christ's claim to be the Messiah and how does he describe his relationship with the Father, and it's one and the same. Just those two questions to say this. Because I've had people that I meet with who say, well, Jesus didn't even claim to be God. And I say, oh, to the contrary. No, 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 no. And so you will see through the questions that are throughout this book, four, five, six times, Jesus is going to say something that is going to be him declaring himself to be God. As we said last week with the little diagram, it doesn't mean he's God. He could be a liar. He could be lunatic. If you discount the idea of even the possibility that he'd be a legend, then it leaves you with the idea that he's who he claims to be the Lord of the universe, which is what we're trying to do. My, my aid here, hopefully to you, is for you to dis- decide who do you think he is. That's the whole idea. Who do you think he is? So... The last question uh, is just a yes or no. And you, we're really asked, this question is being asked from Jesus' point of view. What would he say? Can someone be in right relationship with God without being right in relationship with Christ? And I think you would know if you read the text that Jesus would say, no. If you're not in relationship with me, then you're not in relationship with the Father. So that's, that's the parting point where many people get very frustrated and upset because they so want to believe that there are a lot of different ways. You can come your way, you can come your way, you can, that's okay. Everybody come their own way. Well, I don't know. Don't want to, just don't, want to know what Jesus said, okay? If he's, if he's Lord, then that says something. If the Bible is believable, then it says something. If not, it, it means nothing. And that's what you're trying to decide, Okay. All right, that takes us through that. Now, the rest of our time, we have 15 minutes set aside for Q&A. And uh, if you weren't with us last week, I want to make sure you know how you can ask questions. You have a little green uh, piece on your chair. Uh, if, if people, uh, if you see this online, and again, it comes up on Tuesday afternoon after 12 o'clock, uh, you can still, beginning any time, you folks can too. You go home and have a question, you can go online. You can text a question, you can go online. The information is there how to do it. Uh, here you can raise your hand. I'll alternate between people here. I always like to take preference to the one here first and then to the uh, uh, questions that are being asked in. Uh, every group is different, but I am going to say this the same to all groups, and that is this. Three types of people are here. We've got people who are outright seekers. You're saying, I do not sure I understand. I'm not sure I understand the Christian faith, and I'd like to understand it. This is for you. There's a second group of people, and there are people who say, hey, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I really am. I, uh, I, I believe, but I, I'm not sure that my, my belief has turned into a deep enough conviction, and I'm here because I want to study that further. And then there are people here that are bringing folks, and they say, it's even a conviction to me. But the people that this is for are for people who are saying, I really am seeking. I'm trying to figure out the Christian faith, and I need some answers. Uh, we've got places here at the church for you folks that are part of Perimeter, so this is not a time for you to be asking questions. This is for our guests. And if we don't have any questions, it's never bad to get out early, you know, because we got coffee and everything else. So we'll, uh, we can stop. Uh, it does not hurt my feelings. If no one asks a question, I'm here just to help. And if there's no I- I- interest in that, we'll have some from the, from the board here probably, but let's just open it up. We'll have a microphone come to you so that people online can, 
can uh, or who are watching this uh, uh, on computer, they can they can uh, hear the question. So let's start with a uh, a question here. Raise your hand if you have a question you'd like to ask on anything that you'd like to ask. Right here in the front, we can get a microphone real quick. Right here in the front. There you go. On this side, come around here and fourth row. There you go. There we go. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question. You said that the Bible has been transcribed, translated, uh, paraphrased. How, what, how do you say, what do you say to uh, someone who, you know, uh, a Muslim, right, or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, where they say their Bible is the correct Bible, ours is corrupt? corrupt. Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, you know what I love to say? I say, hey, I love to hear your reasoning. Tell me, tell me why you think that yours is accurate. I'd love to hear that. I'd love to tell you why I think the Bible would be accurate. So it's only fair that I listen to whatever you think would be, you know, and if they convince me as a Muslim that theirs is right, I'm going to become a Muslim. If they, you know, if they, it's their call, you know, everybody can just be open and, and listen to what you hear. I want to hear that evidence too. I will say this, when we come to uh, week number uh, three, which is our, the, the third primary question, it's going to be how can we say Jesus is the only way to God? I'm then going to also address the question, what about other religions? And we'll bring that in at that point and look at their writings and I would be sharing that point with them at that time. But I'm going to bring that up in the, uh, in the third primary question, all right? But, but I'd say, hey, let me hear why, why you believe. And I've talked to Muslims to ask, you know, tell me why. What, what do you believe and why? And I have to say this, I don't talk to that many Muslims. So, I mean, I'm, this is no proof at all. But I will say this, the Muslims that I've talked to are people of other faiths who have their own writings other than the Bible. They're a lot like our Christians, the majority of Christians, who believe something, but they don't know why. Because when you ask them why, they go, I don't know, this is what we believe. Okay, well, that doesn't, that doesn't help me. So, but I will bring some of the data about their writings from four of the main religions when we come to week number, number uh, be our next to the last week. Okay, or two weeks from now. All right, good. Let's see, go up on the screen, because some of you don't feel, yeah, get you a question. We'll, this will be our next question afterwards. Let's go to the screen if we have one. And then we'll, uh, so if somebody doesn't feel comfortable asking in public, you can do it here. Were there chapters or writings that were supposed to be part of the Bible that were omitted? Some say that, writing, that writings were omitted that demonstrated women in authority and or accomplishing great things. I, I don't know of those writings that may have been That's something you'd want to find out. Are there those that were dismissed and why? You'd want to you'd research that. But uh, I, I've studied at length in graduate school, I mean much length, about the whole canonization of scripture and why and so forth. Important to know this, a lot of people misunderstandingly think that the way we find out which ones of all the writings happen to be really from God and the Bible are based on, on these various councils that did meet to discuss the writings of scripture and the authority and all. But the real test, there was one test did the earliest day of the church accept that to be the writing of God? Did, if you can get back where there's some, we know that the apostles certainly believed. Jesus quoted certain ones of the Bible, uh, of the Old Testament. So you have all of those things. But the idea was this, not that we're going to decide, oh, we think this one is, this was not. 
There are some characteristics of those that we'd say we think these are because, and here are the evidences of why we think the early church believed that they were, because we don't have the apostles saying so, but the earliest church did. And here are the reasons we think that they were believed to be. But if the early, 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 earliest church, right as Christ left earth and the scriptures were formulated and finished at 60 years later or whatever, did the early church buy those to be or not? That, that's really the ultimate test as something being from God. Okay? But that's a good question. Let's take your question here. Uh-huh. Is Jesus and God one and the same? And it, are, how many different names are there for Jesus and how many different names are there for God? Okay, great question. Are Jesus and God the same? Yes and no in this regard. Yes, one God. No, three persons. But in other words, one God with three persons is called the Trinity. It's a mystery of mysteries. But keep in mind, we're talking about God here. So mystery is acceptable when we're talking God. If we're talking about human, then we, we want to figure out what the mystery is. But with God, not that we can, I mean, it's God. Or, or, or he is God. So you've got one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal in power, substance, and glory. All right? So there are many names for Jesus, um, uh, but I don't know the number, you know, but there's a, quite a number of different ways that you, you know, you know Jesus, the Christ, Emmanuel, to refer to him. I mean, there are just different names that are given. And then you have God, Jehovah, uh, Yahweh. Uh, you've got different names of God referring to the same God, different names referring, but not to ever believe by the author, a different God because of a different name. It was just ways to describe who that God was by name. But the answer is one God in three persons. It's a mystery. What you don't want to do is fall into this trap that you have one God, and the, the, it's like, I hear this a lot of times, well, it's like water, and, and then you've got, you've got steam, and you've got ice, and so it can change from one to the other. That is not the biblical way of thinking about God, because in that regard, you have to quit being one to become the other. But in this, you know, three persons related to one another as persons in one Godhead, one God. If you talk about God very often, you will use the word Father is the most logical word that you would use to talk about God in the triune, you know, you, often. And you would refer to the Holy Spirit based on the function of what they do. The Holy Spirit based on how he draws people to himself, how he heals, how he comforts. And so if we're talking about addressing God in his role of comforter or whatever, then we would address him as the Spirit. But it's really one God, three persons. All right? Good. I'll go back up here. We got another one? Yep. All right. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls are just the scrolls that were found in the community of Qumran. Uh, there, there were a bunch of, of scrolls that were put in vats. It's an interesting history how they were discovered in 1947, I think it was, that they were discovered. Uh, the Qumran community was being destroyed, and apparently the, the religious people knew we have to hide these precious scrolls and all. So they took them and uh, put them in these caves, deep back into these little caves in the side of the mountain. You can still this day, you can see the, the, the cave holes in the side of the mountain. And a little shepherd boy was, 
was keeping his sheep there, and he was throwing rocks into one of the caves and heard a shattering noise, and these are these vats that they're in, uh, like clay uh, vats, and one of them shattered, and he found the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then they realized that the place was full of scrolls. So that, that's what took them back uh, at that time uh, a thousand years earlier than the, the previous. So, uh, Next question from the floor. Next question. All right, back here in the back. There you go. Good morning. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, going back to one of the points you made earlier about translations, um, is there a right version of the Bible to read as far as King James? or? Yeah, good, good question. There, there's not a right version. There are better versions than others. Uh, King James, uh, this would be my opinion. There's some people that would really dislike what I'm saying, but, but, uh, but not a lot of them. Uh, most of them are dead, but, but uh, the King James is, is probably the worst of all. It was commissioned by King James and who was not even a real true follower uh, of, of Jesus and had his reasons for doing this. And, and it was done with beauty being as important as as being accurate and there was uh, that's a little that's a little strong statement there but still it, it's just uh, one that's not in our english to begin with and it's number two not accurate as much in translation as you would like to see and so year after year they keep coming out with new translations that have gotten stronger and stronger and stronger and if you were to ask me which ones would i put in the strongest group the e um, esv english uh standard version uh, uh uh, New American Standard Version is a very good one. The uh, NIV, uh, New International Version, those are all respected very highly uh, in terms of the integrity of how they were in, uh, translated. But, and, and some of them, like the New American Standard, by the way, is written with the same integrity, but use the philosophy, we want this to be, um, uh, we want it to be more word for word. We want it to be, and you kind of do your translating in a sense there is the niv that took it more from the idea of hey these words actually were put this way in that time and they really kind of meant this and they'll put a little bit of of massaging to it to understand i mean they're moving away from the truth of it they're just using it so that it's now a little bit you know clear to understand and so uh, you would probably find that the niv reads uh, a little bit better uh, but if you, I like the, I use New American Standard because I like to be able to say I know what this word meant and this word, and I do that more myself in terms of, of translating. And now today, the uh, the the ESV is just really good. It probably blends those two as good as any. And so a lot of times you'll see uh, the ESV. We use that a lot around here. So, good question. All right, I've got one more question time. So let's go up here for one more. Or do we have one more? All right. You stated that the Bible has a unified theme. What is the Bible's unified theme? Very, very good. The unified theme of the Bible is the theme of redemption. It's uh, redemption meaning that there was one promised because of the fall of man. There was a redeemer that was promised. And then you go into, after, after the fall of man, you have the coming of Messiah and the whole story, the prophetic uh, stories of the coming of one that would uh, take us out of our sin, there's redemption coming in. 
There's the story at the end that concludes with we will be redeemed ultimately. In other words, we'll be taken out of a broken world and our redemption will be complete. So if you had to have one theme and then you can you see themes of the way they're hooked by, I won't go into it, but the, you can do it by covenants, you can do it by uh, the kingdom of God. There are different ways that you can see themes, but the ultimate theme is the redemption of broken man by... Uh, by merciful God. That's the, that's the real theme of the Bible. Okay, well, these have been great questions. Hope they're helpful. You can keep putting questions up all week, and we'll come back next week and pick up. Uh, I hope you will do this. I hope you will keep reading a little bit every day of John. We're going to cover the next five chapters, so 6 through 10 next week. The questions are in the margin. If you look for the answers and try to find them, it'll make this a whole lot more interesting and, and beneficial. And there's another reason I'll explain later at the end why I say read a little bit every day but if you do that you'll be benefited a lot and then know that we're going to come to the tough one of tough ones this next week and, uh, and that's going to be this whole idea of how can God allow these people to perish and what about people who never heard about Jesus and what about bad things happening to good people so we'll get into some pretty heavy stuff next week all right if you don't mind I'd love to uh, close in prayer have I forgotten anything all right, so let's pray together and I'll let you go. Father, thank you for the time we have here to just uh, talk and interact and, and, uh, and investigate. I pray, Father, that this would help us to come to the uh, conclusions that we believe are most accurate. And we ask you would uh, give wisdom to that end. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.